Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Helaman, Chapter 9 As he came to the end of the second part of his tower sermon, as Chapter 8 of Helaman concluded, Nephi moved from the realm of the abstract and historical to the concrete and contemporary. Uh, This is when he told the multitude of the assembled people in the final verses of Helaman chapter 8, that yea, even at this time ye are ripening because of your murders and your fornications and wickedness for everlasting destruction. Yea, and except ye repent, it will come unto you soon. Yea, behold, it is now even at your doors. Yea, go ye in unto the judgment seat and search. And behold, your judge is murdered, and he lieth in his blood, and he hath been murdered by his brother, who seeketh to sit in the judgment seat. And behold, they both belong to your secret band, whose author is Gadianton, and the evil one who seeketh to destroy the souls of men. Well, at this point, we as readers felt more motivated to turn the page, so to speak, and move into this chapter than we have been perhaps at any other time in the Book of Mormon narrative. What unfolds in this chapter, Helaman chapter 9 then, is an account of the fulfillment of Nephi's prophecy particularly from the unique perspective of five men among the assembled crowd at his tower who run to the judgment seat to see if the chief judge Caesarum is indeed dead. And in this event, they say, Now we will know of a surety whether this man be a prophet, and God hath commanded him to prophesy such marvelous things unto us. Behold, we do not believe that he hath, yea, we do not believe that he is a prophet. Nevertheless, if this thing which he has said concerning the chief judge be true, that he be dead, then will we believe that the other words which he has spoken are true. Well, we will see how this stunning discovery on the part of these five men galvanizes their belief. After all, they acted in faith to see for themselves. From this point forward, they are immovable in their belief in Nephi's gift. Yet others, most notably, quote, those judges who were at the garden of Nephi and heard his words, unquote, and that's from verse 11, are unmoved. We will see that they are so unmoved, in fact, that they continue to dig in their heels and maintain their antagonistic position against Nephi, even when things become more detailed and undeniable as this chapter goes on. Even after Nephi tells them to go to the house of Seantum, who is the brother of the chief judge Caesarum, and he prophesies the exact dialogue that will take place as they question Seantum regarding the blood on his cloak. Yet even then, these judges will apprehend Nephi and put him on trial with the intention, as it is stated in verse 19, quote, that they might accuse him to death. 
Even with our knowledge that these judges were allied with Gadiatin's band, it is still hard to understand how anyone could remain unconvinced of the truth of Nephi's calling, especially after first hearing his powerful tower sermon in Helaman chapter 7 and 8, and then seeing these remarkable evidences, and they were seen firsthand by these judges, of course. But it does support the understanding we have gained at other points in the Book of Mormon regarding signs and wonders, that, quote, the seed of faith will never grow in the soil of doubt, as Rodney Turner once put it. Then he said, where there is a will to doubt, a heavenly sign or evidence will be ignored, rejected, or rationalized away. The rational mind will always reject what the hardened heart is unprepared to accept. That is why signs without faith are a barrier against and not a path to God. Thus, fundamentally, the wonders of Nephite's prophecy in this instance were still, and marvelous as they were, like seeds that would not transform the stony ground upon which they fell. The same is most certainly true for us today. Spiritually speaking, at least, believing is a necessary prerequisite to seeing. If these Nephite judges could remain unmoved in spite of Nephi's clear demonstration of his prophetic gifts, and if the Pharisees, in what has to be the worst case of confirmation bias ever recorded, remained unconvinced of the divinity of the man who walked upon the water and raised Lazarus from the dead, then those without eyes to see, eyes that clearly must first be enlightened by the light of faith, will truly never see the wonders that lie before them. Also I heard the voice of the Lord, said Isaiah, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. This is out of Isaiah chapter 6, by the way. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but they understood not, and see ye indeed, but they perceived not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and be converted, and be healed. Well, this amazing chapter, Helaman chapter 9, is comprised of 41 verses. The first section, uh, in verses 1 and 2, tell us about five men who may be among the certain men that were described a couple chapters back as they gathered around Nephi's tower. Uh, These five men, they go to the judgment seat to check the veracity of Nephi's prophecy. Incredibly, in verses 3 through 5, these five men do make it to the judgment seat and they find the chief judge lying dead in his blood, as it says. And in response to this, these five men fall to the earth. Specifically, verse 5 says that as, as they arrived upon the scene and saw this, they did quake and had fallen to the earth. In verses 6 through 9, we'll see that the people come to the judgment seat. Now, this is because the chief judge, Seantum, has been so recently murdered that uh, his servants uh, uh, went and told the people uh, what had happened. So after hearing the news as delivered by the chief judge's servants, uh, the people in general come to the judgment seat. When they do so, here are these five men who had fallen, and so they discover them there and they blame them and imprison them. 
So all of that happens here in verses 6 through 9. Then, in verses 10 through 15, these five men are brought before the judges. Well, these are the same judges who were at Nephi's tower. And the people report upon what they saw, and, of course, this speaks of the mistaken imprisonment that results of these five men. These five men explain what has happened to the judges, saying that we arrived at the judgment seat, and when we saw all things even as Nephi had testified, we were astonished insomuch that we fell to the earth. And when we were recovered from our astonishment, behold, they cast us into prison. So we can see how the timing of all this has worked out. The chief judge, Caesarum, was murdered, and we'll discover in a, in a few moments here that that was at the hands of his brother, Seantum. His servants uh, saw this take place, and so after it took place, they ran to gather the people. In the meantime, these five men from Nephi's garden tower arrive on the scene and fall to the earth, and so they are framed as the murderers here. And they're now explaining all of this to these judges. Well, these judges certainly know better because they were at the tower with these five men. However, what we'll describe or what we'll discover in verses 16 through 20 is that they respond unfavorably to these five men. These five men were liberated at the day of the burial of the chief judge, as we will read in verse 18, but they still rebuke these judges because the judges still are condemning Nephi in this case, and they actually create a narrative where they accuse Nephi of conspiring with the murder of the chief judge. Now, what we can really imagine here is that these judges, having been part of the band of Gadianton, would to some degree have been confederate with Seantum, the brother who murdered Caesarum. And so they are framing someone else for the murder. They probably knew who the murderer was all along. So what they do after putting this narrative forward, saying that Nephi is really behind the murder of the chief judge and that he conspired with the murderer, and he did that so that he could create a false display of prophetic power, uh, they then bind Nephi. And actually, after they bind him, they even bribe him. It's similar in a way, in fact, to what Zeezrom, when he was antagonistic, uh, said to Amulek in Alma chapter 11, verse 22. He said, Behold, here are six onties of silver, and all these will I give thee if thou wilt deny the existence of a supreme being. Amazingly, there's some bribery happening here with Nephi as well. In verse 20, they say, Behold, here is money, and also we will grant unto thee thy life if thou wilt tell us and acknowledge the agreement which thou hast made with him. So they're saying they are, they are falsely accusing Nephi of conspiring with the murder of the chief judge, but they're saying that if you'll go ahead and plead guilty to this, then we'll spare your life. And couched inside of that is also a bribe that not only will you, uh, because they know that it's not appealing to Nephi to plead guilty, but he will receive money for doing so. So we can see that this is a a method that these uh, judges knew how to use. This gives Nephi a chance to reply to this offer. So in verses 21 through 24, we get his words. And he rebukes and ex- he rebukes these judges and he exposes their intentions. He calls them fools and uncircumcised of heart, blind and stiff-necked. He says in verse 22, 
ye ought to begin to howl and mourn because of the great destruction which at this time doth await you, except ye shall repent. At this point, Nephi does something quite incredible. In verses 25 through 36, he actually tells these judges the exact dialogue that will take place if they will go to the house of Seantum, who's the brother of Caesarum, and if they will ask him about the blood which they find upon the skirts of his cloak, as it says in verse 31. A whole sequence of events will unfold, and Seantum will say certain things. This is what Nephi prophesies. Then in verse 37, we find that they went and did, as it says, even as according as Nephi had said unto them, and behold, the words which he had said were true, for according to the words he did deny, meaning that Seantum did deny, and also according to the words Seantum did confess. So because his guilt is discovered in this way, Nephi and these five are ultimately set at liberty, as verse 38 will tell us. The people generally seem to be privy enough to this sequence of events that this is the only reasonable thing that uh, these judges can do, is to release Nephi and these five. And so uh, then we come to the final three verses of this chapter, verses 39 through 41, where we read the varied reactions. They're all of a believing tone, but the varied reactions of the people to Nephi's proofs. Some believed in the words of Nephi, it says in verse 39, and some believed in Nephi because of the testimony of the five. And we also learn very interestingly that these five had been converted while they were in prison. So again, if we follow their story, they, they were the ones that acted. They, they were willing to listen to what Nephi was saying about the death of the chief judge and find out for themselves uh, whether it was true. So they exercised faith in this interesting way even if it's just a desire to believe, as Alma once said. And ultimately, this led to them becoming converted. And again, that happened when they're in prison. Some, as we're told in verse 40 and 41, concluded that Nephi was indeed a prophet, which would be, of course, the correct conclusion from this. And the others kind of misplaced their awe and said, he is a god. And so they interpreted what he had done within the context of their own religious understanding, clearly not being members of the true church, or at least being apostate members of the true church. Well, now returning to verse 1 for a reading of this chapter, and actually first, here's some commentary by Ogden and Skinner that apply to the entire chapter of Helaman 9. Nephi's prophecy concerning the murder of the chief judge is confirmed, and uh, they cite Helaman chapter 8, verses 27 through 28. Verse 2 implies that the people had at least a sense of the Mosaic test of a true prophet, even though they doubted Nephi was one. The great lawgiver said, And if thou, if thou say in thine heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, Thou shalt not be afraid of him. And that comes out of Deuteronomy, um, chapter 18, verses 21 through 22. Very interesting test of a true prophet, according to the Mosaic Code. So now coming into verse 1. Behold, now it came to pass that when Nephi had spoken these words, certain men who were among them ran to the judgment seat. Yea, even there were five who went. And they said among themselves as they went, And remember that Nephi has invited them to do just this, 
in verse 27 of the previous chapter. He said, Yea, go ye in unto the judgment seat and search, and behold, your judge is murdered, and he lieth in his blood, and he hath been murdered by his brother who seeketh to sit in the judgment seat. So essentially, these five decide to take Nephi up on his offer. It's a little bit surprising that more will not take him up on this offer, but it's only these five who go. And they say in verse 2, Behold, now we will know of a surety whether this man be a prophet, of, and God hath commanded him to prophesy such marvelous things unto us. Behold, we do not believe that he hath, yea, we do not believe that he is a prophet. So there it is. They, they don't believe entirely, but clearly their action shows that they have a desire to believe. Uh, coming back to Alma's words in Alma chapter 32. Nevertheless, if this thing which he has said concerning the chief judge be true, that he be dead, then will we believe that the other words which he has spoken are true. So they, they don't seem to automatically adopt this belief that the other words which he has spoken are true because they need a spiritual witness to come to a full understanding of Nephi's prophetic gift. And that's why we're told later that they were converted while they were in prison. So these men, these five, aren't just sign seekers per se. There's there's a little bit more to them. And we can see that as the story goes on. Verse 3, And it came to pass that they ran in their might, and came in unto the judgment seat, and behold, the chief judge had fallen to the earth, and did lie in his blood. And now behold, when they saw this, they were astonished exceedingly, insomuch that they fell to the earth, for they had not believed the words which Nephi had spoken concerning the chief judge. It's quite interesting that these men fall to the earth, which they clearly do, because it figures prominently into the story. It doesn't just seem to be an idiomatic expression. So as to why this would be, uh, this is a very interesting piece of commentary from Hugh Nibley in Teachings on the Book of Mormon. He says, Every time you're afraid, do you fall flat on your face? Does fear have that effect on you? How come these people all fall down when they're afraid? Well, this is routine. Remember, they lived in a religious world, a sacral state. So if something unexpected absolutely bowls you over, what happens? You're in the presence of some great or divine influence. You don't know whether it's good or bad, but you know it's powerful. It's more powerful than you are. So what do you do? You play safe. You take the position of complete submission. You fall on your face, and it becomes quite automatic. Verse 5, But now, when they saw, they believed. And fear came upon them, lest all the judgments which Nephi had spoken should come upon the people. Therefore they did quake and had fallen to the earth. So true to form and true to their words, in verse 2, once they saw that Caesarum was dead in his blood and did lie in his blood, as verse 3 said, then true to their word, they did believe in Nephi's other words. And it, they hearkened back to what he said in his tower sermon about the judgments that should come upon the people. And then this caused them to quake and then caused them to fall to the earth. So now as we move into verse 6, we realize that just before this had happened, the servants of the chief judge saw that he was murdered. They fled the scene and went to gather the people to bring them back. And so when the people come upon the scene now, these five men will already have beat them to it. And they will, be, they will have fallen to the earth, and so certain conclusions are made about them. So verse 6, Now immediately... When the judge had been murdered, he being stabbed by his brother by a garb of secrecy, and he fled, and the servants ran and told the people, raising the cry of murder among them. 
And by the way, because his brother was uh, stabbed in a garb of secrecy, uh, then that would mean that the servants who ran to gather the people did not know who the true murderer was. This provided for the possibility that it could be these five. So, John Welch has written, Cases of unwitnessed murders presented special problems under the law of Moses. While the two-witness rule would seem to stand insurmountably in the way of ever obtaining a conviction in such cases, such slayings could not simply be ignored. If a person was found slain in the land and the murderer could not be found, solemn rituals, oaths of innocence, and special purification of all the men in the village had to be performed. Uh, There's evidence of that in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. Things turned out differently in Seantum's case, however, for he was soon exposed in a way that opened the door to an exceptional rule of evidence that justified his conviction. And of course, we'll read about that later in this chapter when we find that Seantum simply confesses because of the way that he is exposed. Verse 7, And behold, the people did gather themselves together unto the place of the judgment seat, and behold, to their astonishment, they saw those five men who had fallen to the earth. And now behold, the people knew nothing concerning the multitude who had gathered together at the garden of Nephi. Therefore they said among themselves, These men are they who have murdered the judge. So if any would have been present in this crowd that came to the judgment seat that were also present at Nephi's tower, they would have had a full understanding of what had happened. But this is a different group of people. So they say, These are they who have murdered the judge, and God has smitten them that they could not flee from us. So, obviously, other conclusions could have been drawn uh, when they saw these men laying laying there, but that's the conclusion that these people drew. And it came to pass that they laid hold upon them and bound them and cast them into prison. And there was a proclamation sent abroad that the judge was slain and that the murderers had been taken and were cast into prison. So, that proclamation probably would have been sent verbally, but perhaps even in written form. So now that these men are imprisoned, uh, something new happens in verse 10. And it came to pass that on the morrow, the people that assembled themselves together to mourn and to fast at the burial of the great chief judge who had been slain. So it's only a day later when he will now be buried. Uh, John Welch has written something about this as well. Immediately after the discovery of the murdered chief judge, a public proclamation was then sent out by heralds announcing the murder and calling a day of fasting, mourning, and burial. The day after the death of a political leader was traditionally a day of fasting, mourning, and burial. So uh, there's evidence of that in 1 Samuel, for example, and actually in 2 Samuel as well. So another very interesting evidence of the uh, authenticity of Hebrew culture that, uh, that keeps springing up through the Book of Mormon narrative that would have been nigh unto impossible, or even impossible, to contrive. Verse 11, And thus also those judges who were at the garden of Nephi and heard his words were also gathered together at the burial. And it came to pass that they inquired among the people, saying, Where are the five who were sent to inquire concerning the chief judge, whether he was dead? So that's a loose end that we still have here because we know that there were many who were present at Nephi's tower, and they knew that these five went to see what had happened to the chief judge. So now they're asking about these five. And they answered and said, Well, concerning this five whom you say ye have sent, we know not. But there are five who are the murderers whom we have cast into prison. So now, finally, these two groups will kind of 
come to a mutual understanding of who these five actually are. And it came to pass that the judges desired that they should be brought, and they were brought, and behold, they were the five who were sent. And behold, the judges inquired of them to know concerning the matter, and they told them all that they had done, saying, quote, Verse 14, We ran and came to the place of the judgment seat. And when we saw all things, even as Nephi had testified, we were astonished insomuch that we fell to the earth. And when we were recovered from our astonishment, behold, they cast us into prison. Now, as for the murder of this man, we know not who has done it. In other words, he was already murdered by the time these five arrived on the scene. And only this much we know, we ran and came according as ye desired. And behold, he was dead according to the words of Nephi. So this statement by these five should should certainly exonerate them. Now that they've told this to the judges, there should be complete recognition of what has actually taken place, even though the actual murderer of Caesarum is still unknown at this point. Well, here's the angle that these judges uh, take once they've been told this by these five. Verse 16, And now it came to pass that the judges did expound the matter unto the people and did cry out against Nephi, saying, Behold, we know that this Nephi must have agreed with someone to slay the judge, and then he might declare it unto us, that he might convert us unto his faith, that he might raise himself to be a great man, a chosen of God and a prophet. And now, behold, we will detect this man, and he shall confess his fault and make known unto us the true murderer of this judge. So this conclusion by these judges did exonerate the five. So we are relieved to read that, but we're distressed as readers to see that they're now going to put this false narrative forward and frame Nephi as the murderer in this instance. So verse 18, these five are emboldened enough at this point to speak out in defense of Nephi. And it came to pass that the five were liberated on the day of the burial. Nevertheless, they did rebuke the judges in the words which they had spoken against Nephi and did contend with them one by one, insomuch that they did confound them. So we can see that these weren't just protestations on the on the part of these five. They actually confounded the judges in this instance. Uh, yet the judges still didn't bend. Uh, they did exonerate the five, but they didn't bend with respect to Nephi. So verse 19, Nevertheless they caused, meaning these judges caused, that Nephi should be taken and bound and brought before the multitude. And they began to question him in diverse ways that they might cross him, that they might accuse him to death. Well, we can think, of course, here of Abinadi as uh, uh, those in King Noah's court attempted to cross him, that they might accuse him to death. And in that instance as well, they were just finding some point of the law that he was in violation of so that they could accuse him of death. That's all they needed um, in that case. And so they're going to try to do the same with Nephi, Uh, even though these judges really do know better. We get the impression that they do know better, and that's most likely, as I mentioned earlier, that they are um, in cahoots with Seantum because they're all members of Gadianton's band, and they know who murdered this chief judge, and perhaps they've been promised some position of power if they will defend Seantum. He might have told them that that he would elevate them to a high position. Uh, That seems likely based upon other things that we've read in other parts of the Book of Mormon. So again, their intention is to cross him that they might accuse him to death. Verse 20, saying unto him, Thou art confederate, 
Who is this man that hath done this murder? Now tell us, and acknowledge thy fault, saying, Behold, here is money, and also we will grant unto thee thy life, if thou wilt tell us, and acknowledge the agreement which thou hast made with him. Well, there is no agreement, uh, but they're giving Nephi the option of a guilty plea because it might allow him to be spared. And on top of that, they're offering him money too. Nephi is not going to take the bait, as we'll see in just a moment. Uh, First of all, though, some commentary. Thomas Arvaletta has written, Rational or even circumstantial evidence, although helpful at times, doesn't ultimately produce true faith, especially to these corrupt judges. The Lord has declared that true faith does not come by signs or wonders. Behold, faith cometh not by signs, but signs follow those that believe. That's out of Doctrine and Covenants, section 67, verses 7 through 9. Similarly, in our day, even if the Lord showed the world the golden plates or other artifacts of the Book of Mormon, they would not believe it. Behold, if they will not believe my words, they would not believe you, my servant Joseph, if it were possible that you should show them all these things which I have committed unto you. That's out of Doctrine and Covenants, section 5, verse 6. What accusation were the judges making against Nephi in their declaration that he was confederate? According to Webster's 1928 dictionary, to be confederate is to be united in a league, allied by treaty. Here, Nephi's accusers suggest he is one of them, given to secret oaths and works of darkness. Their own darkness is evident when they offer him money and promise not to prosecute him if he will just tell them who killed the chief judge. Well, now, Nephi, as I mentioned earlier, will not take the bait, and he will now speak. He is given a chance to respond, and so as he does so, he will rebuke these judges and also expose their intentions. So, verse 21, But Nephi said unto them, O ye fools, ye uncircumcised of heart, ye blind and ye stiff-necked people, do ye know how long the Lord your God will suffer, that ye shall go on in this your way of sin? Ogden and Skinner point out that the language of Nephi's chastisement here uh, sounds much like that of the Savior in Luke chapter 24, verse 25, where he said, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Then they say, We are fools if we do not believe the words of the prophets. In this response, Nephi also uses this interesting phrase, Thou uncircumcised of heart, and Daniel Ludlow talks about this in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism. The Apostle Paul taught circumcision and outward ordinance didn't profit a person unless he kept the law. To be circumcised of the heart means to be a covenant keeper inwardly, that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. That's out of Romans chapter 9, verse 29. In modern times, Joseph Smith affirmed the perpetuity of the Abrahamic covenant and defended the integrity of Judaism. Today, however, if Latter-day Saint males are circumcised, it is for cleanliness and health, not religious reasons. From the beginning of the modern church, the emphasis has been on circumcision of heart. And uh, there are several scriptures uh, that one can refer to here when considering the meaning of this. Uh, Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah chapter 4, and Ezekiel chapter 44. Such a heart is taken as a sign or token of one's covenants with Christ. This may be the understanding of broken heart and contrite spirit among Book of Mormon prophets and in modern revelation. A great example of that is in Doctrine and Covenants, section 59, verse 8. 
Thou shalt offer a sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in righteousness, even that of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Then Nephi continues in his rebuke in verse 22. O ye ought to begin to howl and mourn because of the great destruction which at this time doth await you, except ye shall repent. That creates quite an image, that word howl. Uh, Donald Perry has said this word often used by Isaiah implies that the wicked are like dogs and wolves who howl while under distress. Verse 23, Behold, ye say that I have agreed with a man that he should murder Caesarum, our chief judge. But behold, I say unto you that this is because I have testified unto you that ye might know concerning this thing, yea, even for a witness unto you that I did know of the wickedness and abominations which are among you. Now, as Nephi names Caesarum here as the chief judge, we can remember that in Helaman chapter 5, Nephi stepped down from the judgment seat. Uh, Again, think, we talked about this in the last chapter, but think of the irony of Nephi, who was once the chief judge, being put in this position by these lesser judges. Uh, But at that time, when Nephi stepped down from the judgment seat, he handed it over to a Caesarum. That was C-E-Z-O-R-A-M. This chief judge is different, and this is many years later, and his name, although phonetically similar, is spelt S-E-E-Z-O-R-A-M. So as to the meaning of this word, Caesarum, uh, Hugh Nibley has said, the judge's name was Caesarum, and we had a Zeezrom before. That is the Egyptian word Z-S-R, a very popular name, founded the third dynasty of Egypt. The name means holy or sacred. Our word Deseret comes from that. The land of Egypt, the holy land, the red land, is called Deseret. And of course, the symbol of the lowland is the bee. This is the Deseret name, the Zeezrom name. It pops up throughout the Book of Mormon. Uh, really interesting there. Now, verse 24, Nephi says, And because I have done this, ye say that I have agreed with a man that he should do this thing. Yea, because I showed unto you this sign, ye are angry with me, and ye, dis- and ye seek to destroy my life. So as Nephi is saying this, we can think about the kind of pickle that he is in. Here he is standing trial by, again, these ironically, these lesser judges holding a station that's less than what he once held. But he's standing trial uh, by these judges, and they are very determined to condemn him to death. It would seem that his only way out of this situation is to plead guilty. Uh, that would be the one way that he could go forward. Uh, then the uh, cause of this murder could be pinned onto him, and since he didn't directly do it, he would have probably a lesser punishment than that of execution. So that seems to be his only way forward if he wants to spare his life. That would be unless he had such a stunning endowment and detailed ability to prophesy that he could get out of this pickle, and that is now what will happen. So he'll say in verse 25, And now behold, I will show unto you another sign, and see if ye will in this thing seek to destroy me. So he's already stunned them with the sign uh, that he spoke of at the end of the previous chapter with the murder of Caesarum. Uh, But that still didn't allow him to go free. That still gave the judges space to create a false narrative and to frame him. So now he's saying, all right, I will offer you another sign, and let's see if with this uh, sign that you will still legally be able to go after me and destroy me. What we'll discover is that um, 
these judges are not able to legally condemn Nephi, and he is set at liberty later, so we'll, we'll read of that. But what we also know is that this second sign that Nephi gives these judges still does not lead to their conversion, and when we, we talked about that in the introduction to this chapter. Ogden and Skinner also discuss this. They say the relationship between signs and belief is a crucial one for all of us to ponder and understand. And he that seeketh signs shall see signs, but not unto salvation. And, and here, this is coming out of Doctrine and Covenants section 63, verses 7 through 11. Verily I say unto you, there are those among you who seek signs, and there have been such even from the beginning. But behold, faith cometh not by signs, but signs follow those that believe. Yea, signs come by faith, not by the will of men, nor as they please, but by the will of God. Yea, signs come by faith unto mighty works. For without faith no man pleaseth God, and with whom God is angry he is not well pleased. Wherefore unto such he showeth no signs, only in wrath unto their condemnation. So, uh, with that really enlightening passage on signs and kind of reviewing that concept, now we move into this prophecy by Nephi, which will go into such incredibly specific detail and which will allow him to be set at liberty again, as it will later say. Verse 26, Behold, I say unto you, Go to the house of Seantum, who is the brother of Caesarum, and say unto him, We can only imagine that these judges at this point, if they indeed did know that Seantum was the murderer, which they probably did because they were probably allied with him in this plot, uh, when they hear Nephi say this, their, their stomachs must have dropped when they realized that they're was no end to Nephi's prophetic ability. So he tells them, Go unto the brother of Caesarum Seantum, and say unto him, in verse 27, Has Nephi the pretended prophet who doth prophesy so much evil concerning this people agreed with thee and the which ye have murdered Caesarum, who is your brother? And behold, he shall say unto you, Nay. And ye shall say unto him, Have ye murdered your brother? And he shall stand with fear and wist not what to say. And behold, he shall deny unto you, and he shall make as if he were astonished. Nevertheless, he shall declare unto you that he is innocent. But behold, ye shall examine him, and ye shall find blood upon the skirts of his cloak. And when ye have seen this, ye shall say, From whence cometh this blood? Do we not know that it is the blood of your brother? And then shall he tremble, and shall look pale, even as if death had come upon him. And then shall ye say, Because of this fear and this paleness which has come upon your face, behold, we know that thou art guilty. And then shall greater fear come upon him, and then he shall confess unto you, and deny no more that he has done this murder. And then he shall say unto you, That I, Nephi, know nothing concerning the matter, save it were given unto me by the power of God. And then shall ye know that I am an honest man, and that I am sent unto you from God." So utterly remarkable here. Nephi would not take the bait. He would not lie. He would not uh, suggest that he had anything to do with this murder, even if it was at the peril of his life. But instead, he was able to use his prophetic gift in this remarkable way. Ogden and Skinner have said, Nephi prophesied the murder of the chief judge and exposed the judge's brother as the murderer, thereby convincing some Nephites of his role as a true prophet. Every valiant elder or representative of the Lord Jesus Christ may declare as Nephi, I am an honest man, and I am sent unto you from God. 
this comment that I am an honest man is is very interesting in this context. And President Gordon B. Hinckley once said, how difficult for so many to resist the temptation to lie a little, cheat a little, steal a little, bear false witness, and speaking gossipy words about others. Rise above it. Be strong in the simple virtue of honesty. That's undoubtedly something that Nephi was well-practiced in, was this virtue of honesty. Well, um, that's remarkable, as I mentioned, this prophecy, but now let's see if it comes to pass in the way that Nephi said it would. Verse 37, And it came to pass that they went and did. Now, who they are here is a little bit unclear because it's the judges that are speaking to him in this somewhat formal setting where they're trying to condemn him unto death. Uh, And so we know he is defending himself against them. He invites them, it seems, to go and have this dialogue with Seantum, the brother of Caesarum. But whether they themselves went or whether they sent others is is hard to say for sure. Uh, Presumably it was these judges. In any event, in verse 37, it says, It came to pass that they went and did, even according as Nephi had said unto them. So that tells us that all of those details played out in just the way Nephi said. And behold, the words which he had said were true, for according to the words he did deny, meaning that Seantum did deny, and also according to the words he did confess. And he was brought to prove that he himself was the very murderer, insomuch that the five were set at liberty, and also was Nephi. So much to these judges' chagrin, they had to set Nephi at liberty. John Welch gives us insight into the mosaic context of all of this, as he kind of did earlier. Here he says, Under the Talmud, no man can be put to death on his own testimony. No man may call himself a wrongdoer, especially in a capital case. In the biblical period, the normal two-witness rule could be overridden in the special case of a self-incriminating confession. Um, And so that's kind of a question that that Welch um, that put out there as we read earlier in this chapter. Uh, and, and then we discovered that Seantum did indeed confess and that this was a workaround to that, um, that, that case of, of, of a two-witness rule. So he says, If the confession occurred outside of court or if God's will was evidenced in the matter by ordeal, lots, or otherwise in the detection of the offender, and if the corroborating physical evidence of the crime could be produced... But from earlier times uh, came four episodes that gave rise to an exception to this rule against self-incriminating confessions under certain circumstances. Those precedents, each of which involved convictions or punishment based on confessions, were the executions of Achan, see Joshua chapter 7, two, the man who admitted that he had killed Saul, and that's in 2 Samuel chapter 1, three, the two assassins of Ishabolasheth, the son of Saul, and that's in 2 Samuel chapter 4, as well as 4, the voluntary confession of Micah, the son who stole from his mother, which is recorded in Judges 17. The ancients reconciled these four cases with their rigid two-witness rule by explaining that they involved confessions before trial or were proceedings before kings or rulers instead of judges. An exception was especially granted when the confession was corroborated by an ordeal as well as by the production of the corpus delecti, as in the case of Aachon, who was detected by the casting of lots and whose confession was corroborated by the finding of the illegal goods under his tent floor. So, of course, that's a lot of detail in that um, uh, commentary that's provided by Welch. But again, the idea here 
is that there had to be some way to prove Seantum's guilt under the Mosaic Code, because these people clearly still lived by that code. Uh, but because Seantum was able to be made to confess in this very exceptional way, that overrode the usual requirement for the two-witness rule to condemn him uh, and to establish his guilt. And Welch is saying that there are four biblical precedents for such an exception, and that this instance would fall under those precedents, or it would fall in line with those and be similar to them. So now in verses 39 through 41, the final verses of this chapter, we get varied positive reactions, really, uh, to the people after Nephi has shown his prophetic gift and and uh, all that he has prophesied has shown to have been true. We would hope that by extension then, all the th- and this is what happened to the five, that by extension, all of the other things that Nephi prophesied would also be true. Unfortunately, that is not the conclusion that all came to, but the five did, thankfully. Verse 39, And there were some of the Nephites who believed on the words of Nephi, and there were some also who believed because of the testimony of the five, for they had been converted while they were in prison. Now this, of course, implies that once they were converted when they were in prison, that they then preached to others, and they bore testimony of the truthfulness of the words of Nephi. And now there were some among the people who said that Nephi was a prophet. Um, and there were others who said, Behold, he is a God. For except he was a God, he could not know of all things. For behold, he has told us the thoughts of our hearts and also has told us things. And even as he has brought into our knowledge the true murderer of our chief judge. So kind of a misplaced devotion there, kind of a misunderstanding on these people's parts, and it's kind of disappointing to us because we know that what Nephi did was well within the purview and the ability of a prophet to do. That was true then, and it's true today as well. And uh, these people should simply have concluded that Nephi was a true prophet, like unto, as he said in Helaman chapter 7, Moses, Abraham, uh, many other prophets, including the brass plates prophets that he mentioned, uh, all the way up to Nephi and Lehi, and all the way up to himself. And that would be the hope that these people were coming to the same conclusion, just as the five did. Ogden and Skinner wrote, Nephi was recognized as a true prophet by some. Others recognized that only God could know the thoughts and intents of a person's heart. Therefore, they reasoned, Nephi must be a god. We know, of course, that Nephi was a prophet. But as we will learn in the next chapter, his will was so fine-tuned and was so closely aligned with the will of God himself that there it is somewhat understandable that these onlookers could have made this mistake because we'll discover in the next chapter that he will be blessed with a sealing power and that he will not ask anything that's contrary to the Lord's will. And then it's in chapter 7 that we will see that sealing power being used in some very interesting and compelling ways that will cause the people to repent. So we have all of that to look forward to. But for now, this brings us to the end of Helaman chapter 9. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions 
in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.